Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm Mila Atmos. What would fair, comprehensive immigration policy look like? This is a question we hope to tackle with today's guest on Future Hindsight, Brent Wilkes. He's a lifelong advocate for Latino rights and was just given the Lifetime Achievement Excellence in Community Service Award by MALDEF, the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Educational Fund. He's the former CEO of the League of United Latin American Citizens, or LULAC. Welcome, Brent Wilkes. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mila. It's great to be on your podcast. What does immigration policy look like if it's done properly and comprehensively? Because right now, I think we're having a very narrow discussion about it. Well, for the advocates, we've always thought that when you look at the undocumented population in the United States, there's about 11 million people, give or take a few million. And we wanted to try to help those that were here that were out of status get right with the law. If they'd gotten into serious trouble and were felons, we understand that those individuals will have to leave the country. But folks who had minor issues, in fact, maybe the major crime they committed was immigration-related crimes, like coming in without status or having a false ID. For those individuals that are working hard and contributing to our economy and trying to live that American dream, just like millions of immigrants before them, we think they should be given a chance to get right with the law. We call that comprehensive immigration reform. And there were really three major focus areas here. One was the dreamers, the folks that we kind of talk about DACA now, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. We thought they were a special case because they were brought to this country by their parents, and therefore they actually didn't break the law. Their parents did. So they're pretty much blameless, and they're just like all the other youngsters in this country, working hard to try to get a good education and try to find a job, and we think that that's the most easy case to make, and we think those individuals should be given a pathway to citizenship rather quickly so they wouldn't have to wait as long as others would. And then you had the agricultural sector, and this is an area of the United States where immigrants have traditionally come in to work. We've had programs in the past, like the Brissetto program, that brought in farm workers. We still have H-2A programs, for example, where we're bringing in farm workers. We think that's a special case as well, because the agricultural sector is our major export to the rest of the world, and we need to keep that strong. And so we thought those workers should have kind of a medium pathway to citizenship. The last group was the folks that are kind of working in all different types of occupations. They're out of status, but they're contributing to our economy. You know, they could be working as nannies. They could be working as bricklayers. It runs the gamut of all types of different uh, career options. We thought those individuals probably would take the longest. So we talked about 12 to 15 years earned legalization where they would prove their good uh, will by working hard and contributing to our economy, paying taxes, getting right with the law. And at the end of that pathway, they would be able to adjust their status and become citizens as well. So that's what we refer to as comprehensive immigration reform. And if you look at the bills that were bipartisan that included Senator McCain and Senator Kennedy and others that kind of fashioned these pieces of legislation that we thought had a good shot of passing, those were really the basic elements of those bills. So we've just been talking about only DACA recently in the news. What happened there and what can still be done? Well, so after the failure of comprehensive immigration reform during Obama's term, he decided to act on his own and create the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, which is the DACA program. And this is really to help dreamers. So the people that would have benefited from the passage of the DREAM Act, he wanted to provide a pathway for a quasi-legal status, a temporary status. It's basically the government saying, yes, you're out of status, but we're going to choose not to enforce a deportation order on you right now. And in the meantime, we'll give you work permits and you could even apply for permission to travel abroad if you so chose. It's kind of 
uh, similar to the temporary protected status that we extend to certain countries that have natural disasters like Honduras and El Salvador. We had President Obama put this in place. He could do it just as an executive order. He didn't need Congress to act. And it enrolled about uh, 800,000 individuals, young people. They were able to get work permits. They were able to complete their education. They started working for a lot of great companies uh, around the country. There were quite a few more dreamers that are out there that chose not to take advantage of DACA. Many of them feared what would happen if, we'll say, the next president wasn't as immigrant-friendly as President Obama. The next president obviously isn't nearly as friendly towards the immigrant population. A lot of us feared that President Trump would follow through on his threat and immediately get rid of DACA in his first day in office. We were able to keep him from doing it for about a year. But he finally, under threat of certain states, went through and and rescinded and kind of sunsetted it. So this March was the last time frame that DACA was supposed to be in place. However, a bunch of states sued and the cases were successful. So now DACA is enforced not because of the president's will, but because of a court order. And until the Trump administration either wins in court or finds some other uh, legislative uh, status, these students are still able to uh, work legally in the United States, renew their DACA permits, and in some cases actually apply for DACA brand new. And so students who had never applied for it could actually enroll in the DACA program now. What is the future of comprehensive immigration policy? We're all descendants of immigrants. And so it's a little bit um, you know, inconsistent to say we got to be tough on today's immigrants when our ancestors got to come in and, and much more lenient policies. In fact, when my ancestors came in, they just hopped off the boat and that was being legal back then. There was nothing else to it. And I think that's part of the thing that we've got to educate the voters about is they don't quite understand that their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents came in legally, but it was so much easier. We've got to remember that immigrants are just like our ancestors were. They were pursuing this American dream. The vast majority are actually harder working than the rest of the U.S. population. They they tend to have higher labor force participation rates. They work longer hours for less pay. They're doing the types of jobs that we really need, like building somebody's house. That's a pretty good thing. Or picking your food. We depend on their labor. And if we just give them the chance, they'll be good contributing members of our society. We're hoping for a change in this midterm. But to win on the immigration front, we've got to have success on the civic engagement, on the voter turnout, and to convince not just our own community, but other communities too, that the right thing to do is to be a more welcoming America, not to be so fearful of people that are different, and to support policies that would give a chance for hardworking Americans to get right with the law, to earn that pathway to citizenship that our ancestors all had the opportunity to do. In addition to the points you made about fear and how much easier it was to enter the U.S. for most American ancestors, what is the most damaging false narrative around immigrants today? You can take your pick, but I think what Donald Trump's using a lot is this focus on people who've done really awful things. He called them as 13 members animals, but he didn't call the guy who shot up a black church an animal, and he didn't call the guy who just shot up a school in Texas an animal, and he didn't call the Parkland shooter an animal. But he's kind of selectively lifting up the examples of where immigrants have done something wrong, ignoring the fact that there's plenty of other people doing awful things, and that what we've got to do is focus on the crime itself. If you commit murder, if you commit rape, you should be held to account, you should be punished, you should be put in jail. 
if you really want to get right down to it, white men have killed more people than any other single group in the world's history. So we're pretty awful people if you kind of put us in a group and we're all responsible for each one's crime. But that's not how it should work. You should be judged on your own individual contributions to this country and what you do wrong. And if you do something wrong, you should be held to account. If you're hardworking and you're doing good work, it doesn't matter which group you belong to. You should be given an opportunity to live the American dream. That's the message we've got to get across to people and get people to stop thinking of immigrants as somehow being more predisposed to committing horrible crimes. You've been in this space for a long time. What are the immigration policies that, in your mind, have worked really well? I'll give an example of a program that we had a hand in, which was the 1986 Immigration Reform and Control Act. That was really the last time that we had a legalization program for people that were out of status. We expected about 3 million people to be able to apply for that program and get legalization. About 1 million did. And so we had about 1 million people apply and get citizenship through the program. But today we're seeing the results of that, which is all these amazing businesses, high-tech companies, mom-and-pop grocery stores, lumber companies, big construction companies that have been created by that population. And their kids are now, you know, these elite universities around the country. It's just amazing to see the unlocking effect that that piece of legislation had on unleashing this amazing talent and this drive of that population. Because for a long time, they'd been kind of kept under wraps. They were prohibited from being able to live the American dream. But once we unleashed the potential of that group of one million immigrants, it's had a huge impact on this country in a very beneficial way. How was LULAC able to pass that immigration bill in 1986? What did it take? And what does that mean for future legislation? We always assume that Democrats are going to be there for us, and they were. They were solid. But the Republicans came on board, too, including Ronald Reagan. Many consider him to be the, the gold standard for Republicans, right? And he was very conservative. But he also had this vision of America being the shining city on a hill, and he believed in the American ethos of hard work and individual liberty. So he was consistent and said, you know, for this immigrant population, they should have a chance to get right with the law. And so he signed the 86 immigration bill. Alan Cranston was Kennedy's partner, a Republican from Wyoming, that was the lead on the Senate bill as well. What we did is we worked with a bipartisan group of folks. And in addition to the legalization program, it did bring in some enforcement pieces. For example, something called employer sanctions, which you probably don't hear about so much. But it basically, for the first time, we had a law now that says that you have to check the status of the person that you're hiring to see if they're here and eligible to work legally in the United States. You fill out one of these forms, basically, that and I think it's an I-9 that basically says, yes, this person has shown me documentation, birth certificate, a passport, or something that shows me that they're eligible to work here in the United States. So the idea there was to discourage future undocumented immigration. It didn't work, unfortunately. The, the uh, A lot of employers did enforce it, and others didn't. There's whole industries in the United States that depend on undocumented workers, fast food industries, for example. And if they really enforced the I-9 form, they'd go out of business. So since you mentioned employers, I think there's some hypocrisy between business and undocumented workers. On the one hand, they say, we want to make sure that everybody's legal and on the books. And on the other hand, they really like to pay subpar wages to undocumented workers. Or sometimes it's that they can't even find workers who want to do the jobs that they need to fill. And they hire undocumented workers because they're the ones who are willing to do it. What is the relationship there between the employers and the undocumented workers? Well, that's a great question because this is where the immigration issue becomes a lot more complex than what 
a routine thought about it really is. And so what what you've got here is a, a situation where some employers who risk hiring undocumented workers also tend to be unscrupulous when it comes to their employment practices, and they'll abuse the workers. This is one of the reasons why labor, in that 86 bill, for example, labor actually opposed the bill. They didn't want it. And they were worried about the abuse that undocumented workers were going to be subjected to, and if that would just bring labor standards down across the board, even for unionized workers. We had to basically get the Democrats to vote for the bill anyway, despite the opposition of the major labor unions. But today, they're on board. So they've shifted their minds. What they realized was it's better to have somebody in status and working legally than having somebody out of status because they're so much easier to exploit if they're out of status. Because as an employer, your employee can't just go run to the authorities. If they do, they basically are reporting themselves to the authorities for deportation. And and we've had so many cases where employers won't even pay their workers. And they say, if you complain to someone, I'll have you deported. In some cases, people still complained, and then the employer reported them, and the authorities went to move to deport them. And we're saying, hold on a second. You know, there is a law here, actually, that says you can't use a complaint against someone who is breaking the law to deport somebody else who reported that crime. And so we've stepped in and tried to fight those individual cases. But it is exploitative, and we'd be much better off if we were able to help that undocumented population adjust their status and no longer be so dependent upon that employer who can, at a whim, report them to the authorities. On the other hand, we kind of got this have our cake and eat it to mentality, right? We've got people who are working the hardest jobs in America, jobs that, honestly, I wouldn't want my kids to do because it's not good pay and it's kind of a dead-end career and it's really hard work. They're doing that for us and we depend on that labor. And instead of saying, thank you for doing the toughest job for the least amount of pay, we say, oh, what are you doing here? You're not here legal. Hey, you know, you're taking advantage of me. It's kind of hard to understand how somebody working 80 hour weeks in the hot sun picking our food is taking advantage of us. But that's the rhetoric. And I think we have to understand that that's really not accurate, that if anything, we're taking advantage of them. And it's in our power to say, you know what, you want to work this hard job and you want to take the low pay, fine, but we'll give you a legal status to do that because that's the least we can do. Right. That's the correct rhetoric. So um, let's change tracks a little bit. We've been hearing for years now that the Latino community is going to make our politics more progressive and that they are expected to turn out and vote for Democrats or for more progressive candidates, let's say, in large numbers very soon. Um, But actually, they've been expected to do that for some time now. So what happened? How come in a place like Texas, 40% of the population is Latino, but they don't all turn out to vote? Certainly there's been a lag in terms of the number of Latinos who are eligible to vote and the number that actually turn out and vote. There's probably close to 26 million Latinos that could currently register and vote and closer to 13, 14 million that regularly turn out in elections. But I think there's a a number of other factors here at play as well. So first of all, you know, some Latinos are undocumented, and so they're not eligible to vote. Or some uh, Latinos tend to be the youngest population. They're not old enough to vote yet. So not all 58 million Latinos are even eligible in the first place. And then it shouldn't be completely unexpected that a population that's struggling to find work opportunities, that historically had a lot of immigrant-related discrimination visited upon them, to which politicians have been more likely to demonize than to actually try to engage and get them to turn out, 
that that population would be probably less likely to vote. That was kind of the design of all this kind of voter suppression strategy. But that said, there are 13 million Latinos that voted in the last election, probably more in this upcoming election. When I started at LULAC, it was closer to 4 million. So it's been a huge change. And if you're talking about the biggest movers in the voting population in the United States, you got to look at the Latino community as being the biggest growth area of any of the you know, population groups. The thing that we didn't expect, though, was the extent that the kind of white mainstream population would start voting against the interests of immigrants. So just as Latinos started having a big impact on races and other uh, immigrant populations and minority populations, the white population has continued to get more conservative in their voting behavior. In this last election, we even saw unionized white um, voters going more toward the conservative, you know, voting for Donald Trump. The real story here isn't so much how come Latinos and other immigrant groups are underperforming. The real story is why is the white population suddenly becoming less progressive? So actually, one of the things you said, which I didn't realize, that only about 26 of the 58 million Latinos are eligible to vote, and of which you just said 13 million did vote. This is actually in line with more or less U.S. statistics, where about half the population that is eligible goes out to vote. So in fact, when people say we expect more Latinos to vote, we're expecting them to outperform the regular population pool. And so what are the things that you have seen in terms of voter drives, getting people to vote that have really worked? Or what kind of advocacy have you done that you have found most effective? I'll tell you about a campaign we did in Iowa that I thought was most effective. Nobody was putting resources into Iowa to get Latinos to vote. And yet there is a sizable Latino population in Iowa. It's not 25% like California, but it's still a healthy 6% or so. And then the way Iowa has the caucuses, it's the first in the nation. Only about 100,000 people vote in each party in the caucuses. And so if you can have an impressive turnout in Iowa of a group of voters, you can actually have a big impact on national politics. So for the first time, a Latino group invested in Iowa. In the previous election cycle, 1,000 Latinos turned out to vote in the caucuses. We got 13,000 to turn out and vote in the last election cycle. And we got them to vote not just for the Democrats, but we wanted them actually to vote in the Republican primary. Why? Because that's where you can stop Donald Trump. And um, sure enough, Donald Trump didn't win the Iowa caucuses. We didn't invest anything in New Hampshire, and that was our mistake because he cleaned up in New Hampshire and got back on track. But I think if we had been able to knock him out maybe in the first three states, we may have a different president. Still might have been a Republican, but hopefully it wouldn't have been Donald Trump. I think that's an example of where you go to an area that hasn't really gotten a lot of attention, and the effort to get voters to register and turn out is a lot easier because it hasn't been worked on so much. And so our lesson there was don't ignore the rest of the country. Very interesting. It sounds like hand-to-hand combat, very grassroots, very impressive. Well... We have a midterm election coming up in 2018. How is the Latino community being mobilized in order to turn out and vote? Well, I think there's an expanded map now. So there's a lot more states that at first we were not thinking were swing states and turned out that they were. So that's gotten a lot of focus on states like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, that perhaps hadn't been getting the attention in the past. But the other thing that I think that's important, this is a midterm, so it isn't so much about the presidential race as it is about the Senate 
in the House races, and there's a huge outpouring of candidates. In fact, if anything, the Democrats have too many candidates running. But I think it's good because in the sense that there's this huge outpouring of enthusiasm, people are clearly motivated, and uh, Latinos are dead center part of that big wave of of engaged voters. And I think you're going to see more than the typical increase in Latino vote, uh, uh, a much bigger outpouring. I think they've all been experiencing life under Donald Trump and realizing that their vote really is important. So they're ready to vote in this midterm election. Mm -hmm. Yes, I hope that they turn out. I think we both can agree that the more people vote, the better for our democracy. What can everyday citizens do to encourage immigrants to participate in our democracy? I think the most important thing is to engage people that are different than you are, whether they're immigrants or not. The danger that we're facing as a country is this kind of racial balkanization where groups are sticking with their own and voting with their own and thinking that one group that's holding them back from realizing their dreams when that's not the case. And in fact, most groups that are challenged economically, that are worried about their career opportunities, they have a lot more in common and would probably like to see the same policy objectives, uh, more robust efforts to try to help people that are struggling to find an opportunity. And so the solution to that is to get outside your comfort zone and go and talk to other people. I, I actually think my life is a bit of that because, you know, I'm not Latino, I, but I decided after graduating from college that I would do something that most white men don't do. I went to work for a Latino organization for 30 years because I felt that it was really important to show that just because I'm white doesn't mean I can't care about issues that are important to other communities. And in my mind at the time, I thought that the Latino population was going to have this huge impact on the country. It is, in fact. And that one of the best ways I could make a difference to help the entire country was to help this population be successful. If we all just gave each other a little break and realized we're all part of the same team and we're all part of the United States, I think we'd find out we'd have a much better society, a much stronger society, and one in which we'd all win at the end of the day. Right. Well said. Looking into the future, what gives you hope? You know, we talked earlier about immigration. It's disappointing to me that um, we spend so much time trying to make lives more difficult for people who are struggling instead of saying, geez, how can we give them a helping hand so that they can be as productive citizens as possible in the future? That's what we should all be thinking about. How can we help? How can we make sure they become a success? Perfect. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mila. It's great to be on your show, and I'm really uh, excited. You're doing great things and looking forward to hearing the upcoming uh, third season here. It's going to be exciting. What struck me the most about this conversation was the unmasking of our nation's common rhetoric against immigrants. They work long hours of physical labor, truly hard jobs like picking food in the hot sun, and take low pay. They contribute to our economy in the most basic way. We ought to give them legal status doing this work that is essential to the comforts of our daily lives. Immigrants, it turns out, are just like our ancestors, pursuing the American dream. We must convince our own community and others that the right thing to do is to be a more welcoming America. Even Ronald Reagan in 1986 saw that the shining city on the hill included hardworking immigrants. The history of immigration policy is that it goes in fits and starts, and if we do get comprehensive immigration policy one day, it will have been the result of many years of work and advocacy. How can we give a helping hand and make sure that everyone becomes a success? That's what's good for America. 
if we all realize we're part of the same team and we are all part of the same United States, we will have a stronger society. How can we become more engaged in the political process? On the next episode of Future Hindsight, our guest is Scott Warren. He's the CEO and co-founder of Generation Citizen, an organization that works to ensure that every student in the U.S. receives an effective civics education in order to have the knowledge and skills to participate in our democracy as active citizens. You had more people who showed up to the Women's March after the election than voted. You need both of those, but you need people to vote. The only way to change that foundational behavior is to focus on the root causes of it, and one is actually investing in ensuring that young people understand how democracy works, why to participate, and what their rights and responsibilities are. Until next time, I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Tsunbu. Find us online at futurehindsight.com and listen to us through your favorite streaming services.